Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of the Hackable You podcast. It is Alex, Will and Ed back again to give you our dose of cyber news, our topic of the week and of course secrets from the SOC. Hello guys, Wednesday evening, raining in the UK after we were complaining about the heat recently. How are you doing? What have you been up to recently? I tell you, this weather has got me all sorts of confused. One day I'm in a beer garden with a cocktail and the next I'm under the duvet with a hot chocolate. I don't know what to do. <laughs> you in bed under a duvet with a hot chocolate. I don't believe it unless it's got whiskey in. Don't get excited, mate. You're not invited. <laughs> yeah, good. Much more happier now that the um, the heat has gone away because that was pretty unbearable for, for a few days, wasn't it? Sweating away in, in my office at home. Difficult to work with. But uh, it's a classic British thing, isn't it? Complain when it's too hot, complain when it's too cold, so... We're never happy. Literally never, ever happy. <laughs> well, here we are at episode 11. Um, a massive thank you to everyone that listened so far. We're still really enjoying doing it and actually have a, quite a few uh, big things planned to roll out over the next month or so that hopefully will grow this platform a little bit. So please do stay tuned to our social medias and LinkedIn where we tend to do most of our engagement I see no reason to delay things. Let's jump into the cybersecurity news for this podcast. So first up this week relates to a data breach against a top level, top tier information security training provider called SANS Institute. If you've worked in the industry long enough, you'll know that SANS courses and certifications are the creme de la creme, the cream of the crop. Um, really uh, great courses that go into a lot of depth and uh, have immense value on a CV, however, are a little on the expensive side. So this news relates to the fact on August the 11th, SANS suffered a data breach after one of their employees was a victim to a phishing attack. The attacker tricked the user into installing a Microsoft Office OAuth add-on called Enable for Excel. Once the app was installed, a new Outlook inbox rule was created that forwarded emails containing certain words to the attacker. Words included things like bank, contribution, dividend, payment or purchase, and a host of other financial institution type words. A total of 513 emails were forwarded that contained roughly 28,000 records of personal data or PII. The email itself posed a SANS SharePoint file entitled Copy of July Bonus. Threat intelligence shows that the phishing campaign likely started on the 24th of July 2020. Guys, interesting uh, topic this time to see a firstly an infosec firm being uh, breached as we never like to see that, especially if they're the guys teaching us how to avoid it. Uh, but also, as we mentioned before, quite a simple one here with the new inbox rule being uh, created to steal personal data. What do you make of this? For me, it just shows that no one's immune. No one's immune to these attacks. And, you know, as soon as the headlines hit that SANS have been breached, I bet there were so many people out there thinking, oh, I wonder if they were having strong passwords. I wonder if they had MFA. But what I really like about this style of attack, and we've covered it before on one of the episodes, is OAuth. MFA, it bypasses MFA and it bypasses strong passwords because it gives permission to the inbox. So uh, strong passwords and MFA do not protect against this OWARF style of attack. One of the key things that stands out for me here are 513 emails that were forwarded. Okay, that's that's a considerable amount. But the fact that those emails contained 
you know, roughly 28,000 records of PII or personal data. What are you emailing around uh, containing this information? Surely there is a more secure means of um, of storing or communicating this data. Were they internal emails between the company? Were they direct from customers? It's uh, it, it does baffle me a little bit that you're able to get that sheer amount of data just from forwarding a few emails. I think the whole forwarding emails um, tactic is it's quite a common one, really. I've seen it. I've seen it a few times, and I actually even even seen it in um, in the police when I, when I worked for the police back, you know, uh, about four or five years ago. So it's a it's a tried and tested method. I've definitely dealt with it in the past before, actually fairly recently, where inbox rules have been created that forward out emails containing certain words like that. It's a it's clearly not a new uh, method. It's been used before, but every time I have seen it, it's been so successful. You know, if you're a savvy attacker that gets those emails or unable to do a little bit more with it, some recon or whatever, then you're kind of quids in. And like Alex has already said, if you can bypass those other controls and uh, you can get into the user's inbox and create a data breach that way, the traditional kind of recon against a network, getting administrator rights and privilege escalation kind of go out the window here because you're able to jump in grab data directly from a user's inbox and away you go hey for those of you that are listening and just thinking ah you know what can i do about this sort of thing um two key points for me here is have a look at what apps you have authorized onto your system onto your cloud app system and also make sure you're aware of when inbox rules are being created so throughout i know throughout the microsoft cloud app security suite um, it's, it's good at logging. So you can tell when someone's creating new inbox rules. So if you can couple that logic with, uh, I don't know, some sort of unfamiliar sign-in followed by inbox rule creation, you're in pretty good stead to get in a step ahead. I've definitely done that. So if you don't know, within the Microsoft Security and Compliance Center, there is a specific alert for new inbox rule forwarding rule created to an external email address. Um, and you can, like Alex has already said, marry that up to almost a risky sign-in. Um, if they've compromised the account through standard phishing, the OAuth apps is a different area. There might not be an alert or indicator for that, but like Alex has said, make sure you go and check what applications you've given consent to and what you've actually, uh, what that consent is actually asking for. The second news item for this week is something that's been posted around over the last couple of days or so, and that is that the Canadian government have confirmed they have been targeted by a credential stuffing attack against their GKKey platform, which is a kind of online platform used by many uh, departments within the Canadian government. To compare that to something that is very similar to the UK government gateway ID, if you've ever logged into kind of HMRC for your taxes or uh, asked for a new passport or whatever, Royal Canadian Mounted Police have stated they were first notified of the attack on the 11th of August. Around about 9,000 accounts were successfully compromised, but that is out of a total of 12 million potential accounts, which is the equivalent to 0.075% of the entire database so you know a successful attack but clearly not drastic you tend to see those kind of conversion rates with credential stuffing anyway affected accounts have been disabled however there is some further investigation ongoing into some suspicious activity there have been reports via twitter that say attackers or fraudsters had compromised an account and changed the direct deposit information in order to steal coronavirus relief payments, so really current to the times. Credential stuffing is a headache, 
Alex and Will, we've dealt with it in the past. I'm pretty sure any form of login page that's exposed to the internet will experience some form of brute force or credential stuffing activity in its lifetime. Things like 2FA, MFA, capture codes really make this thing difficult. What are your thoughts? The trouble is, is that it's such a straightforward attack in you know in reality, um, and it's very low risk and the payoff is is pretty pretty high really because you know if you're if you're able to compromise accounts then um, and those accounts go undetected then you know you depending on the platform you you can build a pretty good catalog of um you know of compromised accounts in in quite a short space of time really if they're you know if they're not detecting those so um it it's one of those ones i think that sound on paper doesn't sound that bad but i think actually it can be pretty catastrophic I think it's one of those things that it goes on so much and is so prevalent that um, a very low and slow style credential stuffing attack over time can am- amount to be a massive data set of uh, you know correct credentials or accounts to a particular system or service. And that's the real worry there is that um, you know is by sheer amount of volume it becomes a very successful and prevalent attack. And our last topic of this week calls into question the benefits for paid-for threat intelligence feeds. So so this time, this is industry-specific news that I think is going to cause a little bit of controversy. Will, you've had a look into this this week. What can you tell me about this particular topic? Yeah, so it's a, um, it's, it's a really interesting article, actually, by, uh, by Dark Reading. Um, and it's, it's called Research Cast Doubts on the Value of Threat Intel Feeds. Uh, like you said, Ed, I think this this could be quite controversial because um, a lot of the threat intel feeds will, will obviously take quite a lot of argument around the idea that their feeds may not be quite as, as valuable as, as what they think they are. So the article basically talks about um, the fact that there's some, there were some researchers in uh, the Netherlands, there were some researchers in the Netherlands and Germany. Um, they compared threat indicators from four open source threat intel feeds uh, and two commercial feeds. Um, which obviously they're not going to name the commercial feeds, uh, and they found a very little overlap between all of those services, basically. Uh, one vendor had 13% of the data covered by the other vendor, um, and only 1.3% of the indicators from, from between the two vendors as well. So basically what they're saying there is a lot of the threat intel feeds are not sh- not showing the same picture of the same data across them. And that's, that's pretty concerning in, in a lot of ways because... What that says is that the is that those those Intel feeds are potentially uh, unreliable, um, and if they're unreliable in intelligence, then intelligence is if the if if the data is, is unreliable, um, then any any data that you then turn into intelligence from those feeds becomes unreliable and essentially useless. I think in many ways this might reflect quite a few different people's uh, experience of these threat intel feeds, they can be quite, well, personally, I find them, they, they can be quite, yeah, they can be quite unreliable. You know, sometimes you you check you check a few of them, certainly open source ones, and, and they don't say, they don't show you the same picture or the same data. Um, and that's, that's really difficult to deal with. I think for me, right, intelligence is all about having multiple sources to kind of back up your context or you know lots of data to ratify and kind of confirm a theory or again you know to back up your intelligence paid for 
services for intelligence feeds specifically and what i should clarify are there are threat intelligence companies like FireEye, digital shadows recorded future that do a lot more than just threat intelligence and providing you a list of iocs right if you're paying for lists of data sets and iocs that's what we're talking about here if you're putting all of your eggs in one basket i'd question whether you're really getting the breadth and variety of data that kind of confirms that that really is the intelligence side behind it. I am a strong believer in the open source intelligence framework. There is so much out there for free. And not only is it free, it's easy. There are lots of other parts of cyber where things might be free, but it's a little bit difficult to get into your environment. If it's running a few scripts or whatever, you know, they're not the easiest things to ingest, but there is so much free, easy tooling around open source intelligence that I would never see the need to pay for a feed specifically. Um, this report, I think a lot more digging needs to go into it to really seeing how they measured the value. But I, I can't help but agree to say that if you're paying for a specific feed, you can probably do more with multiple other free feeds. I, I think that's a really important point that you kind of covered there is that these are just data feeds. And a lot of time, these feeds will be sold to you as as threat intelligence. You know, and they are a part of or potential part of threat intelligence, but by themselves, they're not threat intelligence. The whole point or purpose of a, of a, of a intelligence analyst is to take all that data, analyze it and work out what is rubbish and what is useful. And so don't be fooled into thinking that you can just onboard these feeds and all of a sudden, you know, you'll be more informed than you were yesterday. There still needs to be a level of, of analysis to turn that data into actionable intelligence that you can actually use. And you said it there, right, the key word actionable intelligence. And that's where the firms I mentioned really come into their own, right? Because they take a data feed, they apply it to the, the situational awareness, the contextual awareness for you as an organization, and then help you measure the risk that data poses against your business, which is the intelligence part. And and they're the key differences. If you're paying for a fees, you're only getting that data, which is, in my eyes, not very useful really good services will take that data and apply it to your scenario and tell you what you need to do. That's the value that a SOC or security operation could have if they don't have an in-house intelligence team or person. So that wraps up the cybersecurity news for this week. We hope you enjoyed and we'll jump into our topic of the week. Okay, so a slightly technical topic of the week this week, we're all going to look at the concept of live response and host evidence gathering. So what is live response? This sits in the realm of what's called DFIR or Digital Forensics Incident Response and is often a unique skill set that companies don't have in-house. Essentially, and in a nutshell, Live response is the ability to respond and gather evidence on an endpoint at the time of a compromise or a detection. Now, how does this differ to what we've spoken about before? Most SOCs deal with log data. They use something called a SIEM, Security Information Event Management System. I, I can't remember which way around it is. It's, I think it's that. You had um, to think about that quite a lot there, didn't you? I, I never know whether it's SIEM or SEIM or SIEM or whatever. S-I-E-M, and uh, some of our colleagues across the pond called it a sim, but call it a sim. No one should ever call it a sim. This is not a game where you, you know, can have birth to an alien. Uh, so, yeah, the likes of Splunk, Elasticsearch, they all 
um, ingest logs and you can run detections against them for alerting. However, you don't tend to get the really important information you need directly from an endpoint when it is either compromised, believed compromised, or you're having to investigate it for whatever reason. So why is this useful? Proxy logs, Windows event logs that you're ingesting into your seam are very, very high level compared to the information you'll get from an endpoint. The data collected during live response is of immense value and can highlight indicators of compromise and pick apart a compromise or an investigation at a very, very deep level. It's not an easy task to do, and that's why it's a pretty select skill set. However, often this is the type of evidence that's required if your course takes legal action or law enforcement get involved. Essentially, it is the bread and butter proof the event had happened. So what data would you collect is a kind of common question you might get asked for a live response. This can range massively depending on how much you might know already about the event. If you're only aware of a host has been compromised purely because of a simple signature detection on the network and you know nothing else, you'll probably want to capture quite a lot of information. However, if you're already aware of some indicators of compromise, maybe you've had an AV detection, you're, you're aware of the, the file that caused the compromise, you might be aware of the network connections that might be going outbound, you may only need to collect certain types of files. Sometimes you might need a full memory capture, database files, and plenty of other hidden items that you won't see day to day. This is the real deep integrated part of an operating system or file system that you know no engineer is really going to use on a day-to-day -day. it gives you the ability to see things like deleted files for example you can see what people are google searching how they're doing it rather than just looking at the simple proxy connection log but how do you go and collect this now there are so many free tools that you can run on an endpoint which will basically scan through the entire operating system and file structure and pull out these files. There are also a host of tools that allow you to then analyze that data collected during live response. A couple of my favorites are Redline by FireEye, Scylla, which is C-Y-L-R. They're two great tools that you can run on a machine to collect all this information. When it comes to analyzing it, Redline as well does collection and analysis. Autopsy is a common free open source format um, for host investigation and case management as well as a popular known enterprise tool called Encase. It's um, it's sort of frustrated me to my core sometimes when you just need to get onto an endpoint. You need to see what's causing something. And for me, that live response, that endpoint analysis is the difference between what something is doing and what is causing something. So you're looking at your seam logs and your proxy logs and you can see, yep, this machine's talking to Russia on a dodgy IP, but what's causing that? So being able to pull that data off the host, so what scheduled tasks are running, what's in the DNS cache, what processes are running, you know, what users currently exist on that host. It's valuable and it's things that you're not gonna see in transit or in your seam logs. So the most valuable thing that I've got from host analysis is understanding the processes and the scheduled tasks that are on that machine. Another key one that people don't tend to think about is the Windows registry on Windows endpoints that is, you know, when you're doing detection and response, you're looking at an AV log, proxy logs, you're not going to look at changes to the registry because A, if you're ingesting that information, there's going to be so much white noise and B, often it's quite select and technical and, you know, it doesn't provide that much context. However, during a detection, seeing what changes were made in the Windows registry can really give away an indicator of compromise. And often when 
threat intelligence feeds are provided, they will give you registry key entries that are made and you can then take your live response data that you've collected and search for that specific Windows registry key that's been reported as malicious and see if it exists on the endpoint. What do you think live response means for the likes of offensive security? I think it, it means that you have to be, if you're if you're looking to actually um, remain undetected, you have to be very, very aware of the of where and how your activities affect the system that you're on. So where there may be basically little breadcrumbs that you're leaving behind, um, because there's often things, there's often breadcrumbs that you leave that you don't even that you, that you, you probably wouldn't even think about, um, you know, normally. Um, but it's also led to the rise of anti uh, anti forensic software as well. So software and and capabilities that look to counter um, and to make forensic analysis of of those systems more more difficult. It's one of those things, isn't it, where you know there's there's forensics and there's counter forensics in the same way that there is intelligence and there's counter intelligence. There's there's always two sides to the coin, isn't there? So um, yeah. you have you have to consider consider both both sides really. And if you walk through uh, the kind of ethical hacking methodology that you know is taught, you have the last phase of an attack, which is kind of clearing your tracks. And uh, at a very, very high level, what most basic threat actors might do is clear a log file. They might corrupt a file so it can't be recovered. But when you do live response and you do host evidence gathering, you're going to capture the evidence that, that action was taken Therefore, it kind of negates the usefulness of just clearing that log file because if you're able to prove the log file was cleared, you're back on the kind of front foot. Yeah, and and one last example of that, you'll see a lot of malicious actors or and sometimes malicious software will try and clear uh, the Linux command history. That's a really really easy way because that's that command history logs everything that gets through that gets put through the command terminal, um, which would, if you were a instant response person and you were able to to find that, you could basically see step by step where, where where they've been and what they've been doing potentially what they've been looking for as well so that's really something that as an attacker you don't want to leave behind um so there are a lot of um you know things out there that will alert on things uh, you know alerts when command history has been deleted or, or removed or amended how do i know when i need to do live response and host evidence gathering and when the data in my seam is going to be enough so it will depend case by case, obviously. But I think it's the difference between containment and actual eradication in the instant response lifecycle. So you may be able to quite happily stop a malicious connection out to a command and control server. But how do you stop the host from making the connection in the first place? If you're asking yourself that question, if you find yourself with the ability to stop what's happening but not actually stop the root cause of what's happening, that's when you need to dig a little bit deeper. That's when you need to get on that host and understand why these things are happening and not just be satisfied with, you know what, I blocked it, so it's fine. No, you need to know how it's ha started happening in the first place and what's causing that to happen. I, th I think in some ways that's a difference as well between a between a good analyst and a okay analyst. Is <laughs> you a, can a really say bad point. analyst, it's fine. They do <laughs> exist. Such a good point. <laughs> is, is that, is that a, a really good analyst will dig deeper. They'll always dig deeper. And they won't, and you know it's it's really it can be quite common and quite lazy in some ways just to see someone go oh we'll just block that and then that's that's that problem solved it's not that problem solved like Alex said you know you've got to dig dig deep and find those root causes you know do that root cause analysis what I'll say for anyone that wants to kind of 
give live response a try definitely do it is pretty intrusive on an endpoint and an end user um so start small when you see a detection live response is not the answer straight away look at the context look at the data you have available to you and, and make a decision whether you don't have enough information or you require the, the low level information within that endpoint but if i was you have a look at Scylla run the Scylla script on an endpoint. It has the ability to SFTP off to a central location server if you're pushing all of your kind of evidence collection back to one central place. And then dig around the files. Look what it collects and what you might learn from those type of files that you wouldn't normally get through your scene. Cool. Thanks, guys. Great discussion. I love the topic of live response. It's really kind of nerdy. I wish I did more in the DFIR space and I take my hat off and I stand in awe of those people that do it for a living. Let's jump into our exclusive element, Secrets from the Sock. So this week's Secret from the Sock is going to be about creating your C-cert team and the role of your C-cert team in incident response. So a C-cert team, if you guys don't know, is your cybersecurity incident response team or your computer security I think there's a different definition for it no in every single country or organization I've heard. CERT, CERT, CRT, there are just so many. There's a lot. And I've even read in some places that it's a historic term and it's not used anymore. But anyway, regardless of that, your CERT is a virtual team of people that come together in the event of a major incident to work towards a resolution. And I can see your face when I say virtual team. So what that means is, so what that means is, being in a CSER is in their full-time role. When you create a CSER, you're going to have a number of people from different specialities that come together to focus on that common objective. So you're going to have people from legal, from incident response, from comms, maybe from a technical team like networks, maybe an incident manager. But they're not going to be working on this full-time. They come together when required to solve the incident. So you're telling me they kind of spin up and spin down a bit like an, a, a cloud-based virtual machine? precisely why it's called virtual yeah so they have their own day jobs and they won't be focused on this full time but when required they assemble and they like the avengers i see um, and and a lot of places and you might not even realize that you've used a csert and you may not even realize that you're in a csert but after listening to this maybe you will so guys I, I've, I've worked with you on a number of major incidents um what's your view on how we use csert in an organization at the moment i think one of the things I want to mention is um, you're absolutely right in the fact that they're kind of spun up and spun down. They involve many dis disciplines, not just the cybersecurity SOC type people. Um, however, if you look at some government organizations, they tend to have CERT. So you have the US CERT, um, the National Cybersecurity Center in the UK have a team dedicated to incident response. And that is because they are inundated. So they're not needed to be spun up and spun down because they are always busy. There is a constant requirement at a government level to have a dedicated team of incident responders who deal with the major stuff. But like Alex has said, in your organisation, unless unless you have massive problems, your CSERT shouldn't be responding every second of every day. Therefore, the relevant teams and people resolver groups within them are kind of spun up and spun down. I think they're incredibly useful and many people just think it's, you know, the incident responders who are in the SOC, i.e. you have the people who detect things and uh, report on them and you have the people that respond to them and that could be seen as the CSERT. But when you 
kind of take that bird's eye view, you widen your eyes a little bit and bring in those other disciplines, like you said, Alex, the legal teams, other teams within IT, business representatives, maybe even the comms team, if you're having to do something a bit more public, provides immense value. If an event was to happen where you had to call in these teams, do you know how you would do it? How would you spin up that C-cert, cert, response team, whatever you want to call it? I think many people are doing it already without knowing it. I think if if you're listening, if you think back to the last major incident that you were involved in, you would have been on a call with uh, a security analyst and then there would have been someone from one of the other technical disciplines in there. So maybe there would have been someone from the network team, there may have been someone from the end user compute team, and you would all been working together to find a resolution, right? Because they are technical experts in their own area and they can contribute towards your security instance work to a resolution. That's your CSAT. I guess a really, really simple way looking at it is that when you come across or when you see a car crash, it's not just the police there who are, you know, shutting the roads and giving CPR or treating people and putting fires out. It's it's everyone, isn't it? It's the the fire brigade are there, the ambulance are there, the police are there. They've all got a role basically, and by themselves, they can't really they can't resolve the incident. So they need everyone in their specialist areas to do their roles so that the incident can be resolved and, and you know meet and uh, remediated so alex here's a question for you then you say people are already doing it probably without realizing are you trying to say then that this should be formalized and if so why and how would i do that it doesn't necessarily have to be formalized but i think everyone should have an awareness of what it is and everyone should have that preparedness for how to invoke the CSA, if you call it that or not. So the best way to do that is to have your tabletop exercises. So I've worked in organizations before where we have had a whole bunch of people in the room, one from each different area of the business, and we've run through tabletop exercises. So uh, a scenario given, you know, maybe a malware outbreak on one end or a ransomware uh, or some sort of DDoS attack. And everyone in that room has to work together to understand what their role would be. So the network team would have a role. The service desk would have a role. The legal team, that at some point, there'll be need to issue comms, to issue comms out to the public. Now, security analysts are not going to be able to issue comms to the public. Can you imagine? Oh, my God, it would be an absolute train wreck. Yeah, I'm not going to pass any further comment on that. But (laughs) techies techies are not known for being great with the words to public. Let's put it that way. Um, So... Yeah, that, that's the reason for that is you have everyone as a specialist in the area to come together. So in terms of do I think it should be formalized, not necessarily, but I think everyone should be aware and just be prepared. It goes back to the old adage of failing to prepare is preparing to fail. And we've mentioned it on the podcast before. The preparation phase of incident response is so important and will help you understand how the C-cert will work. And that wraps up episode 11 of the Hackable You podcast. As always, guys, a great discussion um, and a good natter about what we love to do in our day job. And hopefully you as our listeners have enjoyed it and taken something away. But before we uh, close off, let's jump into the key takeaways for this episode. I think my key takeaway is around the, um, like you said, around the digital forensic tooling. Um, Get some hands-on experience because if you ever need to do it in a hurry, then... um, that's not the time to to try and work out how to use it try and work out how to use it in advance start familiarizing your non-security teams with the work that you do and how they can help when you need it 
because there's nothing worse than needing them and them not knowing how they can help you. My key takeaway is slightly related, but not quite. So I mentioned a couple of the live response tools there. There are plenty of open source tools um, for instant response. Definitely go have a look around GitHub. I can recommend Scylla, The Hive, Redline as a few starting points. But go and find the tools that answer the questions you might have when it comes to instant response. Because I promise you there's probably a free version out there that's open source that's going to help you along your way of security maturity and incident response. And that finishes the podcast in its entirety. Thank you for listening and we shall catch you all in the next episode. (music)